Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Let's read together today from Psalm 23. So yesterday we had Psalm 22, the the connection to the crucifixion so boldly laid before us in the Old Testament hymnal. Today, Psalm 23 is probably the best known of all the Old Testament hymns. Psalm 23, memorized by many Christians in the King James Version of the text, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. I do wonder in part how long it might be before we start to memorize that psalm in other translations, right? We don't, in the LCMS, we don't use the King James translation really anymore other than with Psalm 23 and the Lord's Prayer. Those things have stuck. It's a curiosity for me. Will they continue to stick for generations to come? Or will at some point or another a transition happen where we start to have these remembered in the words that we would read them in today in our Bibles? Anyway, let's go ahead and read the psalm. A psalm of David. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. This is the word of the Lord. I remember as an eighth grader being asked what my confirmation verse was going to be, and I told my pastor that I wanted my confirmation verse to be Psalm 23. Come Confirmation Sunday, my confirmation verse was shortened to just Psalm 23 verse 1, but in my own mind, in my own head, right, it's the entirety of the psalm uh, that I have before me. Again, it's a a prominent psalm. It is read together at every funeral. It is said by almost every graveside. This This is known to us. So we start out with the idea, again, the psalm of David. So David is the one who gives us this psalm. So this is David, king of Israel who writes these words, right? He still looks at God to be his shepherd. He still looks to God to be the one who provides for him. He still looks to God as the one who gives him all things good, who comforts him in the valley of the shadow of death. We do want to consider it from that perspective. Now, as we look at these words from our own perspective, right, as God's word applies here for us, Yahweh is my shepherd. He's your shepherd. We can say these words just as well. I shall not want. Here's a great conversation with kids. What do shepherds do? Right? (laughs) To help unpack this psalm a little bit, it's helpful to know what the role of a shepherd is in the life of his service to the flock. 
a shepherd is a man who oversees a flock of lambs, sheep, and he will keep them together, right? As we think about the Lord gathering his church and keeping us together in one body, the shepherd will protect them from enemies such as wolves that would seek to come and destroy and harm, just as Jesus protects us from the attacks of the devil, from the attacks of even our own sinful nature in the world around us. Then we can talk about shepherds who make sure they lead their, as the rest of verse 2 will say, they lead their sheep to green pasture. They lead them to still water. Sheep need food to eat, and they need water to drink. Shepherds help to provide that by leading them to those places. So the Lord, as our shepherd, he leads us to the things that we need in this life. And he does provide for us, but he also leads us more specifically to know him, to know his promises for us. And we'll talk about that some more. Shepherds, so they they protect, they provide, they keep the flock together. And those are major emphases of what shepherds do. And so we see verse 2, God the Father again providing for us. Verse 3, he restores my soul. So you have the restoration of the soul almost in two ways here. At least we can think of it that way. So restoring the soul, refreshed, right? We get that that provision. If you're thirsty and you're quenched, if you're hungry and you're satisfied, you just you feel uplifted. You feel encouraged to go about the work that the Lord has put before you to do. But it is greater than this. That God has restored my soul is a reference also to our salvation. Right? Jesus has restored my soul. He has purged me of sin by forgiving my sins on the cross. Jesus has defeated sin. He's defeated death. He's defeated the devil. He's done these great things for me. He's done them for you as well. So even though we do still struggle in sin, even though we do still wrestle with temptation, our souls have been restored. Body and soul have been promised a new life, a resurrection. This is such good news. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So here we might think of the idea of what the early Christians were first called. We were called the way because of Jesus' own words in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to know the Lord, if you want to someday join him in paradise, There is no way to get there other than through Christ. So his is the way. It is also a reference back to Psalm 1, the idea that we would not walk in the way of scoffers, but rather that we would delight in the law of the Lord. And so we follow his path, we follow his commandments because they are good. Then we get here the phrase, for his name's sake. See if your children recognize where they hear those words more often. For his sake. Shows up in the absolution. Almighty God in his mercy has given his son to die for you and for his sake forgives you of all your sins. As a called and ordained servant of Christ and by his authority I therefore forgive you of all your sins. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Those words that we hear when we gather together every weekend from our pastors are such wondrous words, sharing Christ's forgiveness with us. But notice the way that it's phrased, right? For his sake. Jesus has already paid the price. Jesus has already died the death on the cross. He's already suffered in order to remove our sins from us. It would not make any sense for the Lord at this point to say, eh, nah, not going to give you the forgiveness. That would be to make his own sacrifice in vain. So for his sake, that his own sacrifice is not in vain, but efficacious, right? It already has been accomplished. It's already been done for you. He has done it. The price has already been paid. That's a great way to connect to the end of Psalm 22 from yesterday. For he has done it. For his name's sake, he forgives us, he saves us, he rescues us. Now, I don't want to just pass over here with the first part of the psalm. That's all grouped together in the ESV as one paragraph. The way the Father cares for us, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Great connection to the first article of the Apostles' Creed, the explanation from Martin Luther in our small catechism. So I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What does this mean? I believe that God has made me and all creatures that he has given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason and all my senses, and still takes care of them. He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, land, animals, and all I have. He richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this body and life. He defends me against all danger and guards and protects me from all evil. All this he does only out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me. For all this it is my duty to thank and praise, serve and obey him. This is most certainly true. It's a helpful connector, a helpful reminder to us to think of God providing for us always, always. So we're halfway through this psalm, verses 4 through 6 yet to go here. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, So even though we're coming back to that clause here in a moment, but the valley of the shadow of death is this darkened world in which we live, a world in which we suffer, a world in which we are tempted, a world in which we see the darkened deeds of those around us, evil growing. I know sometimes we'll hear people saying that that really the world is just as evil as it was as soon as Adam and Eve had plunged it into the fall. And in a way that's true, it's just It's just as broken. It's just as dying. But on the other side of things, there's another layer to it. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, phrases it this way in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then verse 13. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So there is the idea from Scripture that sin actually is darkening. It's getting worse. Things will continue to get worse until Christ returns. That's a theme in the book of Revelation as well. We are walking the valley of the shadow of death. We ought not to expect this world to just be a pleasant trip through paradise. Paradise is still coming. Paradise is a place that knows no sin, that doesn't have any death. That's coming. It's even coming in this psalm. So even though, right, even though this is the case, even though we're in the place where there is much sin, much darkness, 
where sin, death, and the devil are working against us, where our own sinful nature, the world, and the devil seek to lead us astray, I will fear no evil. That's actually a common command that we have from Christ in the New Testament. The Lord does not want us to fear anything, but rather to trust in him above all things because he provides for us, he cares for us, he loves us. And I think we can take this even further in this too, in a family conversation, what happens when we die? Or what happens if we die? Because if Jesus comes back first, if he comes back today or tomorrow, many of us won't have to experience death, right? There will be a generation alive when Christ returns, and they won't taste death. How fantastic that will be. So what happens if we die? We are with Christ. Paul's got a couple of great ones on this, right? Uh, in Philippians chapter 1, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So if I live, I get to serve Jesus. There's work he's given me to do as a part of his family, a part of his kingdom right here in this place. But if I die, it's gain because I get to be with Jesus. My race is finished and I am with him forevermore. And that is gain, right? Not loss. It's gain. Consider that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is also really helpful in this. A lot of people would recognize verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. The treasure in the jar of clay, we are the clay and the treasure is Jesus. We have faith in Christ and it is in us. What happens if you break a jar filled with something? That stuff goes everywhere. If you break the jar that is the flesh, that is my body, my faith goes everywhere. There's an element of what Paul is saying here that persecution is actually a benefit to the church as a whole because the martyred saints, they share their faith and their death and the church has grown that way throughout the centuries in many and various places. Paul's going to get into that too in this very section later in that moment he's going to say um, as he, he talks about some of the things that have happened to him, what he's endured, but he then says, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So why does Paul go through all these things? Why does he go through all the affliction? Why does he go through all the persecution? Why does he endure and continue to battle on even though people have even stoned him, trying to kill him? Paul endures it all because he knows, verse 14, he who raised Jesus will raise us. It's really that simple. It's really that profound, right? That you can walk through this valley of the shadow of death with no fear of evil because if evil smites you, if evil strikes you down, Christ will raise you. It's gain, not loss. Blessed are those who are persecuted, said Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And here's why we don't fear, right, according to Psalm 23, because you are with me, referring to God, right? God is with us. Emmanuel, right, that, that name that we use for Jesus, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So the idea of discipline, the idea of guidance, these things are good. They give us comfort because they teach us to trust in Jesus. And when we trust in Jesus, we have a hope that cannot be taken away by the things of this world. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. We would think of the Lord's Supper, right? As, as Jesus provides for us 
even in the midst of this valley of the shadow of death, Jesus provides life, forgiveness through his own body and blood. We would connect it perhaps even then in the future to the marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom. And I say even of the future because in the presence of my enemies, I mean, think about this. Think about the Apostle Paul who started out killing Christians and then became one. How do you think Paul's going to be greeted in paradise? Do you think the guys that he helped kill, do you think Stephen's going to be mad at Paul? Not at all, right? There's much rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. So the marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom never ends. We are going to be gathered there with people that we thought were our enemies in this place because the Lord brought repentance for them too such a beautiful reality that we are all one in Christ. There is an element, what David's getting at here, that the Lord even provides for him, even then, right? Even when he's surrounded by enemies, even when he is, even when things look dark, the Lord still provides, the Lord still cares for him. You anoint my head with oil. The Lord does that for prophets, priests, and kings, David is a king, so this is true that God has anointed him with oil. There is another element to this, perhaps, with the shepherding role, the idea that a shepherd might have had a flask of oil that he could use to help care for a sheep, help soften its skin, smooth its skin. And so the Lord can, in various ways, care for us, help shape us, form us in this life, provide for us. My cup overflows, a great little phrase, right? Uh, It's the idea of his provision for us. And what is our cup overflowing with? It's overflowing with what he gives. And so we can talk about his forgiveness, his love, his life, those sorts of things. And when that overflows then, right, you think, I guess you could do this. You might do it in your sink if you wanted to, but you could do this wherever you want in your house. Um, Have a cup and just start pouring into it. And talk about the gifts as you pour, right? Pour slow at first. Talk about the gifts of God that he gives to us. And then as they start to overflow, where does the extra go? It gets all over the place, right? So maybe don't do it in your sink. Just use water, easy to clean up, but it gets all over the place. It makes a mess. And that is how God's overflowing abundance to us works, right? His love for us, so profound, so deep, his His forgiveness, his gifts of life, all the things that he has to give are so overwhelming that we cannot help but share them. So our cup overflows and we share with others, right? As, as the king here hopefully shared with his people as he sought to care for them. So verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Again, because Emmanuel, God is with us. He's always forgiving. He's always caring for us like a good shepherd. John chapter 10. And I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. How true is that line, right? We have that promise. Paradise is coming. Jesus is preparing a place for us. And if he's preparing a place for us, he will also come back and take us to be with him where he is, right? It's John chapter 14, the start of that chapter that he speaks to the disciples. This is true for you and for me. We get to dwell with God. We get to dwell with Jesus forever. This is the hope of the Christian. This is the hope of the church. So it could be good to have a conversation with your children about paradise, about the hope that yet awaits us.